I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Today's episode, Nothing to Fear, in which a woman fears for her legacy, a man fears for his life, and Howard fears nothing at all. I'm afraid of going into a bathroom when the shower curtain is closed. I'm afraid of dying alone. I'm afraid that I won't be accepted into any PhD programs and all the work and money I spent applying will be for nothing. I'm afraid of the time when I'll no longer be found attractive. I'm afraid of being shot by a psychopath on the train. I'm afraid of riding my bicycle through city traffic. I'm afraid of honeybees going extinct. I'm afraid that I will really regret not having children. I am afraid that everyone is in on the joke but me. I'm afraid I'll die before I do anything important. I'm afraid that I'll always be afraid. A while ago, I was talking to a friend of mine about the similarity between our fears, a certain sameness to the texture and tone of them. We both fear failure, We both fear life passing us by and never living up to our full potential, that kind of thing. But the way my friend put it, whereas he's paralyzed by these fears, I'm not. He saw this as a simple matter of physics. Though we share the same fears, he said, my fears are in front of me, blocking my path, while your fears are behind you, chasing you, pushing you forward. But whether forwards or backwards, we are both running from our fears trying to avoid them and keep them at bay. Sometimes, though, it's only in facing your fears, right up close, that they can be conquered. After I got stabbed in the throat, I wasn't unhappy for an entire year. About 15 years ago, while traveling through Crete, Tim Kreider tried to break up a fight between two drunks, and the next thing he knew, he'd gotten himself stabbed in the throat. Gee, what can I tell you about getting stabbed in the throat? doesn't hurt, so there's that. I mean, I could tell something odd had happened. I certainly didn't think I'd been stabbed. It wasn't until I felt all this hot liquid pouring down the front of my shirt that I understood what had happened. So I just sort of knelt on the cobblestones and held my neck closed and hoped very much I would not die, though I was pretty certain I would. I remembered reading in Philip K. Dick's novel, The Man in the High Castle, that if your carotid is cut, you will bleed out in four minutes. So I figured I probably had about four minutes to live and... I was terrified. I mean, that was about all I had to say for posterity on that occasion was, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. As it turns out, my carotid artery had not been cut. The wound was two millimeters away. Literally two millimeters? Pretty much everybody on the hospital staff whom I saw in the week following told me these exact words, you're a very lucky man. Hmm. People often uh, express sympathy to me, um, imagining what a horrible experience that must have been. And really, it was actually one of the better things that ever happened to me. It was sort of like um, Scrooge on Christmas morning. It it temporarily cured me of being a um, cynical, depressed 20-something. How so? I had always felt this dread that something horrible would happen to me. And I now felt like that thing had finally happened. And I was off the hook. Like, what are the odds? 
of anything happening to me after that. You know, I felt pretty much euphoric to be alive. And um, you're alive, you know, pretty much your whole life, and yet uh, fail to take note of it most days. And it forcibly reminds you that you're above ground instead of under it, and every day is... um, Gee, there's no way to talk about it without sounding sappy and like an inspirational trade paperback, but, you know, it's it's grace. Is it the kind of experience you'd, you'd recommend to other people if such a thing were possible? Yeah. The, the thing is, you can't really contrive it, yeah. you know, like with bungee jumping or something, because really, you're not going to get killed bungee jumping. It has to be the sort of thing where you are genuinely uncertain. Yeah. Um, Ideally, you would hire an incompetent Clouseau-esque hitman to try to assassinate you. Right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, w- I would recommend it. I mean, it's good for everyone to be reminded that um, that they're alive. I mean, I was very lucky, but, frankly, if, if anyone's listening to this, they're lucky, too. We're all lucky to be here. You actually wrote an essay about this experience. Would you mind reading an excerpt? Yeah, sure. There's... um. A nice section on page three. Okay. Maybe people who have lived with the reality of their own mortality for months or years are permanently changed by it. But getting stabbed is more like getting struck by lightning over almost as soon as it happened, and the illumination didn't last. You can't feel crazily grateful to be alive your whole life any more than you can stay passionately in love forever, or grieve forever, for that matter. Time makes us all betray ourselves and get back to the busy work of living. Before a year had gone by, the same everyday anxieties and frustrations began creeping back. I was disgusted to catch myself yelling in traffic, pounding on my computer. I can't recapture that feeling of euphoric gratitude any more than I can really remember the mortal terror I felt when I was pretty sure I had about four minutes to live. But I know that it really happened, that that state of grace is accessible to us, even if I only blundered across it once and never find my way back. At my cabin on the Chesapeake Bay, I'll see bald eagles swoop up from the water with wriggling little fish in their talons. And whenever they accidentally drop their catch, I like to imagine that fish trying to tell his friends about his own near-death experience, a perspective so unprecedented there are no words in the fish language to describe it. For a short time, he was outside the world. He could see forever. There's so much more than they knew. But he's glad to be back. I'm afraid of falling. I'm afraid of losing my libido when I get to menopause. I'm afraid of losing a shoe in the street. I'm afraid of my grandmother. I'm afraid of babies. I'm afraid of destroying the good relationships in my life. I'm afraid of crying in public. I'm afraid of being judged by strangers. So many of us live in fear of what others think of us, and sometimes these social fears loom even larger than the existential ones. When polled, people rank fear of public speaking even higher than death. To be afraid of what people think of you, above your own mortality. Who in the world are these people who think that way? I spend a lot of time in my room Googling some weird things which is why I have to clear my history every time I leave the house, in case I die. This is Jessica Cabot. She worries about the fact that she could die in an accident at any moment. 
but not because she's afraid of dying. Rather, she's afraid of what people would think of the Google search history she'd leave behind. I mean, I know if my roommate died, I think the first thing I would do is look at her Google history search. So I just am being prepared. That's how I see it. I mean, it's like in the same way that, like, you know, our parents tell us to wear clean underwear in case we're hit by a bus or something like that. Yeah. Before you leave the house, you check all the appliances are turned off, you turn off the lights or whatever, and then you erase your history. Exactly. Your Google search history is basically a list of all the things that you are curious about. So it kind of reveals a lot about you. And I have some kind of dark stuff on my Google. That's not the kind of legacy I want to leave behind. How how dark can can I mean can can it really get? Like do you, do you have do you have your computer in front of you? Yeah, I do. Would you feel comfortable going through your search history and sharing with me some of your some of your searches? Sure. Yeah. You know, as long as uh, my parents aren't listening to this. Okay. So so let's uh, let's dig in. What what do you got in there? Let's see. I have dead cats. It turns out that when you Google dead cats and you go to the Google image search, mm-hmm. you get a lot of actual dead cats. Wait, what, what, what were you expecting to find if not, if you're Googling dead cats, I mean, weren't you expecting to see dead cats? Yeah, I guess I just expected it to be a little more innocent, like maybe like a cat that was just like lying on its back with its arms crossed with like a flower or something. But, you know, it was just like kind of gruesome. I kind of learned my lesson there. All right, at least you learned something, I guess. Or what, so, what, what what else you got? Um, hot men holding pizza. I googled that. Uh huh. Why do men grow beards after being rejected? What? Why is that? Apparently, it isn't actually a thing. It's just a trope in TV shows and in my life. Mm-hmm. What are cats saying when they meow? My cat meows at me a lot, and I googled it, and it turns out she's just primarily agitated and annoyed at me. Are there any other are there any other questions that you've recently asked? Um, can you feed your dog basil? Uh huh. None of the results specifically said not to, so I've been giving my dog a lot of basil. Uh, I also googled. Would it be weird if I wore dude underwear? Bo- a boy's underwear. Yeah, uh, but Google didn't know either, so. Okay. Um, I googled ennui. Uh, ennui, uh, as in the the feeling of discontent. Yeah, so it turns out I have ennui. I googled Lindsay Lohan Playboy. I googled Jessica Cabot. That's you. That is me. I googled myself several times that's probably the worst one why why do you why do you think that that's the most embarrassing one it's a little narcissistic isn't it it's a little self-involved but i mean is it is it really worth getting embarrassed about stuff like googling yourself after you're dead i mean that's one of the upsides of dying in a way i mean it's sort of like you don't have any vested stake in keeping up appearances anymore you know because you're not around to appear that's true but I think it's normal to want to leave, you know, the best parts of yourself behind to be remembered by. There's people like Gandhi who are bigger than themselves now. Like, they represent like, a whole, like, way of living. So that's what they left behind. You know, but for the rest of us, 
all we have that we leave behind is the way we've affected our friends and maybe a slightly normal Google search history. That's our legacy. Do you think Gandhi would have had anything embarrassing in, in his Google search history? Yeah, you know, I bet he was uh, one of those million thread count kind of guys, um, you know, because of all those sheets that he wore. So he probably would have Googled that. That probably would have been pretty embarrassing for him. You think that was like one of his, his, his secret uh, indulgences? Yeah, for sure. Everyone has their dark little secrets. Luckily, no one's ever going to find mine. I'm afraid of being exposed. I'm afraid that I've missed my moment. I'm afraid I'll never get over her. I'm afraid that my backup plan is actually worse than my initial plan, and now there's no going back. I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of going to hell. I'm afraid of nothing. Absolute, eternal, nothing. We spend our lives fearing death, fearing what might come after it, or worse, what might not come after it. And yet, all the while, we really don't know a thing about it. In the story Bancha the Silent, the turn-of-the-century Yiddish writer I.L. Peretz tells of a man who could not have been less prepared for what was in store for him in the afterlife. On Earth, Bancha passed through life like a shadow, even when he bore no actual load upon his back, Peretz writes, he still walked with his head bowed down to the earth, as though while living he was already searching for his grave. And when he finally does die, no one cares. He remains in no one's memory and no one's heart. But in paradise, the death of Bancha is an overwhelming event. The angels run around gossiping. Have you heard the news, they whisper? Bancha the Silent has died. On entering paradise, Bancha is placed on a golden throne. What exactly is going on up here, Bancha wonders. He is led into a courtroom with pure diamond floors that gleam with heavenly light. Bancha sits in the defendant's chair, as silent and afraid as he was in life. This can't be for me, he thinks. There's some kind of mistake. Bancha does not make the smallest sound, nor even flutter an eyelash for fear of bursting this beautiful bubble. He'd had dreams like this before, where he is for once happy, only to awaken in despair. His lawyer begins telling the story of Bancha's life, and it makes Job's existence sound like a walk in the park. At eight days old, when he was circumcised, the knife slipped. As a child, his mother died, and he was handed over to a stepmother who beat and starved him. All throughout, he never complained. Even on his deathbed, where everyone is allowed to scream, Bancha remains silent, not a murmur of protest. When the judge is about to render his verdict, Bancha looks up for the first time and squints in the light. On earth, you received nothing, the judge says, but now I offer you all the rewards of heaven. Really? Bancha asks. Really, says the judge, anything you like, and you shall receive it. After a long pause, Bancha the Silent gathers up all of his nerve and makes his request. 
Every morning for breakfast, he says, Could I have a fresh roll with butter? Bancha the silent was too afraid to ask for more, and the angels and the judge slowly bend their heads in shame at this unending meekness that they have created on earth. Perhaps if we, in our turn, do not want to miss out on the full bounty of heaven, we must learn to shed our trepidation and think big, lest fear hold us back from our true destiny. You know what's holding you back, Johnny? What? Fear. Fear? Fear. Why? Well, I, I do think about that. You know that expression, Don't how... you know what today is? Mm. Time for season nine of Johnny G. The season premiere was last Johnny's week. back, and he's bigger and better than ever. Well, I don't know about that, but... So here's what I've been thinking about all summer. Yeah. We bring you out on stage, and to everyone's surprise, in front of a live audience, I kill you dead. Y- you're going to kill me? Yeah, with Showgirls. Song and a dance number, and then for the big finale, when everyone's hitting the high notes... They beat you to death. We call them the wiretap dancers. Okay, like, and, and, and why? This is a very pure form of entertainment. Before there was television and iPods and iPads, people used to get together. They'd watch someone get decapitated in the town square. So, the, the, so Everybody cheers. The crowd goes wild. Whatever you happens. think if you decapitated me on stage, the crowd would, would applaud? Certain crowds would, yeah. Why? You think my fan base. And then, for the final masterstroke, we reanimate you. Have you heard of cryogenics? It's a very exciting field. You can put like a frog in your freezer for like six months thaw them out, and you got a brand new frog. That doesn't work for humans. It might. Oh, it might. You think that's a chance that I should be willing to take? Chance smash. Cryogenics is a very deeply evolved field. They know just what level to put the ice at, how cold to make it, where to cut the head, where to sew it on. Give me an example of someone being decapitated and then reanimated on stage. You're going to be the first. Come on. If you were the second, do you think any of the press is going to come out for this? Yeah, exactly. This so you... comes back to the fear conversation, Johnny. <laughs> Who does it? Yeah, you're going to be a scaredy cat? You want to be like, eh, I don't think you should cut my head off. Uh, what if you don't throw it on right? Uh, what if I die? We get one turn of the wheel. And this is how I should be spending that, that turn of the wheel, by having my head sliced off. Oh, would you relax? We're going to have a basket with a pillow so your head doesn't hit the floor too hard. Think about how exciting this is going to mm-hmm. be. Jesus took three days to resurrect. We'd get you up and kicking in like three minutes, tops. I'm not sure when brain death sets in, but we definitely do it faster than that. That's guaranteed front-page news. Mm-hmm. And the minute that your eyes open on stage, just like in Cats, the musical, we put you in a cat costume, shoot you up in the air with a catapult, 150 feet. Kapong! You're soaring through the air. And what's that that just unfurled behind you? Why, it's a huge banner. And what does it say? Everyone tune in and watch Wiretap, Tuesdays at 8. I don't even know where to start with this. Number one, my show is not on Tuesdays at 8. Oh, it's not on Tuesdays? Okay, no. let's cancel the whole and idea. It's, it's not, not on Tuesdays. It's not a show you could watch because it's on the Can radio. look up when it's on and correct the typos. It doesn't make any difference. And second of all, I don't think there is a catapult in Cats. There's not catapulting cats. Why do you think they call it cats? It's short for catapults. Oh, I'm sorry. And now, supposing you kill me and you're not able to reanimate me. It's just a mishap on stage. Oh, I consider oh, that possibility. It? Oh, you did? Well, yeah, we fill out all the right paperwork and waivers and everything. I, you know, it'll be fine legally. Oh, that, that's the main thing. If you don't come back to life, we're set, Johnny. I got a hologram of you, just like Tupac. Performing hologram. I don't want to be a performing hologram. I am putting on a spectacle here to please the crowds. I can't deal with every artist's demand. I don't want to be a hologram. Look at me. I'm a head on a bucket. Come on. Don't make my job harder than it already is. Maybe I'll even get a wood chipper. If Johnny doesn't come back to life, you can feed his feet into a wood chipper. Okay. Fun for the whole family. You know what? You're looking to kill me. There's a big difference between trying to kill you, kill you, and trying to kill you with love. 
I'm afraid someone is out to get me. I'm afraid of Oompa Loompas. I'm afraid of icebergs. I'm afraid of clown dolls with porcelain faces. I'm afraid of cotton balls. I'm afraid the apocalypse will happen on my birthday. I'm afraid my favorite band will never return to form. I'm afraid of growing up. I am afraid of zero. Nothing gets Howard Shackwood to scared. Nix, nada, not nothing. For the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I am Howard Chakowitz. What? What? Are, first of all, what are you doing in the studio? I'm just trying to help you out. I'm you're, trying to help you out with your. How do you always manage to get the microphone so sticky? I don't know. And you're afraid of nothing. Nothing that I can think of. I mean, Howard, everybody has fears. Not afraid of death. Not afraid of suffering. It's all good. Howard, stop staring off into the middle distance. That's what. It's really That's what a man does. Unsettling. A man has seen it all and done it all. So you're you're not you're not afraid of anything. No, nothing. Absolutely nothing. No. Not horror movies. You, what, you mean like Godzilla and, and King Kong and that kind of stuff? No. The, I, I seem to remember you as a kid being afraid of The Exorcist. Well, first of all, that wasn't a horror movie. That, that was a documentary. And second, it wasn't a do- that's that not was a documentary. That was that not was, a documentary. A real thing that happened. It, they say it was based on something. That was yes, not a. There was, was actors in it, Howard. First, okay, first of all, I was a little kid. Okay. And secondly, that's based on the true story. So you're afraid of The Exorcist? No, I'm not afraid of The Exorcist. I used to be. You used to be afraid. I used to. That but you're no, lo- no longer. No. Now nothing. No fears. No, I have no fears. You mean to tell me you're not afraid of public speaking? I spend my life talking. Let's say in a situation mm. where all of a sudden they're like, Howard, the uh, the president of the Diners Club hasn't shown up today, mm. and we need someone to give a 20-minute speech. That's why I always keep spoons in my pocket. I have some spoons in my pocket. Why do you keep spoons in case in I there? have to perform with spoons? Or mm-hmm. if offered a can of fruit cocktail, I'd have a spoon you know, for, to eat fruit cocktail. You, you mean to tell me even when you're in an airplane and you're going through terrible turbulence, mm-hmm. your stomach doesn't tighten? What's the worst that's going to happen? You know, you, you, the plane starts plummeting. You get to slide on the slide. I've always wanted to see those slide things open. Take my shoes off, go slide down a big yellow slide into the water. Maybe I, get, I tell the stewardess I love her. What's there to lose? You know, go, beautiful stewardess, excuse me, miss, I love you. And I just jump out the window. You're in the big blue sky. You're floating around free as a bird. And you just land in a big pile of hay. Like in a cartoon. Well, not like in a cartoon, like in real life. When have you heard of someone They're, falling out of an airplane and landing in a pile of hay? And it's sur- one of the safest modes of transportation is an airplane. Okay, all right, let me, let me ask you this. You're buried alive, Howard. I would personally find it kind of cozy. It, it, no one there to bother me, no one there to tell me to do any chores, catch up on my reading. All right. Are you afraid of the dark? I love the dark. Are you afraid of getting mugged? Wrecking my karate chop. What about rejection? I, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that question is. Are you about. afraid of lightning? I do not believe in, nor am I afraid of magic. Are you afraid of being forgotten after you die? Who's going to forget this face? Are you afraid of illness? Hospital food's great. I like being pampered. Are you afraid to die? Yesterday was a good day to die. You know what, Howard? I'm I'm very impressed. You live fully without fear, and it's inspiring. Mean daredevil. You really don't let fear or common sense or caution or anything else hold you back whatsoever. No, sir. That's great. Good for you. Thank you. I mean, I could throw you out of a helicopter, tie you up and put you in a pit of snakes. Sounds like fun. Play you the exorcist. Wouldn't make what? a difference. What do you mean you play, play me exorcist? What are you talking about? It burns. Okay, th- st- I don't like power. Stop You're it! You're not afraid of the devil. Please, no, I'm not. Please, ah. I find it unpleasant. Okay, stop it. Okay, I'm leaving. 
I'm gonna leave. You're a Do you want me to leave? You're afraid of the no, I'm not afraid of you. Jonathan, please stop. Jonathan, please. Wiretap today, you heard Tim Kreider, author of the book of essays, We Learn Nothing, and Jessica Cabot, who can be followed on Twitter, at Jessica Cabot. You also heard Gregor Ehrlich and Howard Chakowitz. Special thanks today to all of our Facebook friends who shared with us their fears, and to the men and women of CBC Montreal for reading them. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bertlin-Tonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Or subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can download the latest Wiretap ringtone. I'm afraid of nothing. Absolute, eternal nothing. Flex those existential muscles with every ring of your phone. Why you kings and queens fought for ten decades for the gods.